This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell. Here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. The Orleans Audubon Society is dedicated to the preservation and conservation of wildlife and wild places of the southeastern U.S. This morning we'll discuss the swallowtailed kite, where they can be found, and why this beautiful bird of prey isn't as abundant as it once was. Dr. Major is here, ready for your pet questions. Libby likes to help with your brushes with nature. Join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Here's a reminder. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, uh, Libby. Uh, tell us some of the things that you've been seeing outside your window these last few days. Good morning. Uh, our hummingbirds are here. Uh, we've had them, let's see, they started Monday, and I've had at least one every day since Monday. I'm assuming that these are not any of the hummingbirds that will hang around because that's usually what we're told is that the early ones are coming up from the Yucatan and heading north as quick as they can. And actually, I I don't have anybody this morning out there on the theater, no hummingbirds. And these are all ruby-throated hummingbirds because that's the one that we have the most. And that's the one that will eventually stay here and nest. We'll have a few usually that'll stay all summer. But right now, they're just coming in from uh, their trip to Central America and South America. So um, they need a lot to eat and drink. And uh, I noticed the first one I had Monday showed up about mid-morning on the feeder and just sat there and drank and drank. And, uh, you know, we kind of joked because you know how hummingbirds will fight over the feeder. Two or three males will, they hardly let each other drink anything because they're um, so aggressive. But this guy was the only one there and he's just sat and drank for probably five minutes and it was pretty amazing. So um, I think he moved on. I had another one the next day, but uh, during the storm, I didn't notice anybody and I don't see anybody this morning, none of them, but they may just be kind of hunkered down waiting. So anyway, hummingbirds are back. Everybody needs to get their feeders out and start enjoying them. Then the really the big visitor that showed back up and maybe their residents. Well, they're not a full-time resident, but they nest here and that's the Perula warbler. We have a lot of trees with um, Spanish moss in our yard and they love to make their nests out of Spanish moss. So we always have several Perula nests around the yard and hopefully this year will be no exception because we do have a couple of uh, perulas uh, singing. They ha- they make a neat little zippy kind of a sound, a buzz sort of. And uh, they're pretty small, gray with um, some golden yellow along their um, neck area. But, uh, a really pretty nice little bird to have. 
And let's see, the other things I've noticed, I uh, was sitting, talking on the phone on the steps and noticed a spider case, egg case, just started erupting with, oh, I will say hundreds of little spiders um, just going in every direction, just like about as large as a, a comma or a period on the table, on a, um, on a page. Uh, so that was kind of fun to watch the little spiders spread out. And uh, let's see, uh, just to let people be aware, some of the field trips are starting around the state. Uh, the Mississippi Coastal Audubon Society is going to have a, a, a few field trips, and it'll all be socially distanced, but you can go on their website and uh, find out about times and locations for that. And some of their guidelines for how to attend their field trips. And then Delta Windbird, you remember um, Jason Hoxma came on the show to talk about Delta Windbird. That's a group um, up around the Delta of Mississippi and uh, they've got a field trip coming up and you can go on their website, Delta Windbird, that's W-I-N-D bird, to um, check out that trip. You might wanna join them. If you don't join any of the organized trips, get outside yourself. This is a time of Mississippi when things are changing. You're going to see a lot of butterflies coming out. We talked about the orange-tipped falcate last week, and uh, we've been seeing more butterflies this week and um, will again this coming week. So get outside and enjoy the spring in spite of the pollen. <laughs> Uh, our producer, Java Chapman, tells me that we got an email this morning. A listener in Hattiesburg saw their first hummingbird at the feeder, I think it was last Friday. So they are. this is the time of year for folks to start uh, noticing them. Um, my friend and I went on another trip uh, this last weekend to Marathon Lake, uh, part of the Bienville National Forest. I think it's in Smith County. Uh, but uh, that was a lot of fun. There's a, a, a trail that goes all the way around the lake. Uh, so we enjoyed that, and it was interesting because I, I think they had just done some uh, controlled burning. So it was somewhat interesting uh, to see all the soot and the and the things that were burned. Uh, but we know that uh, that's an important part of uh, maintaining uh, forests, and so we certainly enjoyed that. And I would recommend that for folks looking for hiking uh, things to do in the great outdoors here in Mississippi. Libby, have you ever, ever been to Marathon Lake? I have not. I was just thinking, oh, I need to look on the map and see where that is. That would, that sounds like a good walk. Yeah. National forests just have so many wonderful places all over the state. Uh, also, another thing our producer, Java, found for us in the news, a rare yellow cardinal was spotted in Illinois. And according to experts, there's a less than one in a million <laughs> chance to see one. The couple in Illinois first saw this yellow cardinal at their backyard feeder last year. At the time, they didn't know yellow cardinals existed and couldn't identify the bird. But after a Google search, they found out the, uh, the rare bird does exist, and they were surprised when the cardinal showed up again this year. So, Libby, we talk about birds sort of remembering, you know, where they can get uh, water and food and that sort of thing. Uh, this seems like an example of that. Oh, yes. And, you know, there are several uh, good records, or a lot of good records, of people that have um, had birds banded in their yards and have returned year after year. You know, we feel like it's our same birds coming back over and over. And uh, I hope that's true, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Uh, last year, uh, we had a friend from um, 
University of Mississippi, who's a bird bander. She came here and banded several birds of ours and released them. So I'm hoping that we'll start seeing those bands reappear and know that um, those are the birds that were here before. That's just kind of fun to know. And, uh, you know, they get a good many age uh, studies by, by banding birds, too. And we know that uh, songbirds, it's most songbirds, I guess this is very general speaking because there are always exceptions, but, you know, four or five years is kind of old for a songbird. But I know there are records where for four or five years in a row, songbirds will return to those same nests or a, a nesting box close by the ones where they were the year before. So um, it's just nice to know that if we've provided a nice place for our birds, that they'll come back to us the following years. Uh, let's get a phone call or two in before our first break, and we'll start in Gulfport. Billy's on the line. Good morning, Billy. You're on the air with us. Uh, good morning, folks. We appreciate the uh, information you all give out. What I have a question about is uh, ringworm. My wife and I foster kittens. We have uh, three litters now. One litter has um, has ringworm. This is we foster throughout the entire year, so one litter has ringworm. One litter will probably get ringworm when it gets into the environment that the uh, original uh, litter is in. So what I want you to tell me about is how do I? How, what's the best way to clean the area that the kittens live in? That's well, yeah, it's very difficult uh, when you have uh, litters of kittens with ringworm. Uh, one of the things you can do, certainly, and they're young enough that it's very difficult to treat them specifically, but you can vacuum thoroughly. That helps. You can clean with uh, Clorox, clean the bedding in the area quite well, and uh that gets to be an issue. When they get a little bit bigger, you can start individual treatment uh, of the kittens. Uh, but right now, I don't know how old they are. It sounds like they're just days old or maybe weeks old. Very difficult to treat them. There are topical treatments, and then as they get larger, you can use an oral treatment for them. All right, Billy, thanks for your call. I, Let's uh, maybe get I wish I, Oh, go ahead, I Dr. Wish I Major. Better, better information for Billy, but it's difficult to clear up. It may be that they need to take a break, uh, hiatus, if you will, clean things very thoroughly. Uh, realize that the uh, spores, the ringworm spores or fungal, is primarily a. Uh, on the hair. And when those hairs break off and shed, they get in the environment. So you have the spores there, which is very difficult to clean up, but good vacuuming and disinfecting of the uh, bedding and material, that helps. All right, Billy, thanks for your call. Kicking things off this morning, let's get one more call before our first break. So we say good morning to Terry, who's called in today. Terry, you're on the air with yeah. us. Go ahead. I'll, I'll try to make this quick. Um, I saw for the first time in many, many years a brown thrasher last week, and it took me back to my childhood one of my favorite birds and I'm curious I know they like cover and unless you get out in the woods and see some cover you're probably not going to see them but I'm curious as to how the population's holding up uh, you know is there anything that uh, I need to know because uh, I'd like to start finding more of them 
it, that is a really good bird to see, you know, the brown thrasher. <laughs> They're absolutely beautiful. And I don't know of any particular problems that brown threshers are having, but, you know, we've learned that all birds um, have declined by maybe as much as 30% in the last 40, 50 years. So if you're about my age, um, we're seeing a good many fewer birds than we saw when we were young of all kinds. And the best thing we can do is provide habitat, provide good um, native plant cover for them and uh, native plants that they can get their food from. A brown thrasher, you know, is not a bird that's going to come to a bird feeder. So we need to provide habitat for them. And we can do that in our backyards, but it's, you know, it's better if we have a, a larger block of woods. And it's important not to use too much poison in your yard. And uh, because if we kill the insects we don't want, um, just broadly by using poison, we're going to kill those insects that um, things like brown thrashers need to eat. And that's probably my guess. If you've not, if you used to see them and you're not seeing them in that same habitat, it maybe some application of a chemical that's killed insects in there. And um, if they can't find their um, food, they're, you know, they just can't be in that area. So anyway, glad you saw your brown thrasher, and I do hope you see more of them. All right, Terry, appreciate your phone call. This is Creature Conference. Time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll talk about the beautiful bird of prey, the swallow-tailed kite. From the Orleans Audubon Society, we welcome Dr. Jennifer Colson. Also, Dr. Major and Libby are here for your creature questions and observations. Call in with questions and comments. The number is one mpb ring It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join the conversation with your question or comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a guest with us this morning, so let's welcome to the show our guest for the hour, Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. Jennifer, thanks for joining us this morning. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, came to be part of the Orleans uh, Audubon Society. I have a doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology from Tulane University. I have been studying the swallowtail kite since the, uh, 1989, and I became interested in swallowtail kites when I was volunteering at the Audubon Zoo doing wild bird rescue there. And I also... At Around that time, it, actually in 1984, I saw four swallowtail kites migrating over my house. Mm. I was already doing research with uh, the University of New Orleans, and so that became my focus because I knew this was a rare bird of prey that nobody was studying in this area. Uh, just a qu quick, you know, I love zoos, and the, the, the zoo, the Audubon Zoo there in New Orleans is a real treasure. I would recommend anybody go, go to visit that. It's a, it was a great uh, time, uh, well put together, and a lot of interesting uh, animals there at the zoo. So a, a big plus in, in my book for, the, for that. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the swallowtail kites. Describe what they look like for us. 
I think they're the most beautiful bird on the planet, but then I'm a little bit prejudiced. Some people call them the scissor-tailed or the split-tailed hawk, uh, but this, the common name is the swallowtail kite. They really have an angelic appearance that captivates you. Nothing else looks like them. They have a gleaming white head and body, and then they have these sweepingly long wings that are very pointed and a very long forked tail, which is black. So they're pretty much unmistakable. They spend most of their time on the wing. They even drink and bathe on the wing. They'll skim the surface of a pond or a river and drink a little water with their bill or just let the water pour over their back. Uh, as my pilot, Wayne Wilson, out of Picayune says, those birds really love to fly. <laughs> and do you think that's uh, part of the reason why they're so popular and charismatic? It's something about the way they appear in a blue sky. It just it just gets your imagination going. And yes, they they really are aerial. They just appear like angels. Uh, let's work in one phone call, uh, and we'll talk to uh, John, who's called in from Jackson. Uh, John, you're on the air with us this morning. Go ahead. Hello there. Hi. Uh, you're an authority on some of, of the. Uh, beautiful and special areas of the region. I wonder if you would care to comment on the uh, current administration's 30-30 uh, program. That is the idea of preserving 30% of the surface of the United States and its waters for wildlife by 2030. And if there are any particular areas you would dominate as being special to be preserved in this program for swallowtail kites or anything else. Jennifer, any thoughts? That is a great question. Uh, so certainly that is an ambitious program. Uh, it's one dear to my heart, and I certainly hope that the 3030 program is a big success. When I get up in the air, it's because I do a lot of aerial surveys studying the kites, I get a little bit better perspective on the world. So when I get over something like the Pascagoula or the Pearl River Basin, I start to feel a little bit better about the world. But a lot of the areas I'm studying in central Mississippi are mostly where swallowtail kites are on private lands. And so that is an area where the kite is expanding its range, and it would really benefit them to have a little bit more um, streamside forest preserved, and some of these areas have just recently been logged along, say, the Strong River, uh, Bahala Creek, Little Bahala Creek, some of those tributaries, Kapaya Creek, some of those tributaries that are feeding into the Pearl River because the Pearl River is one of their strongholds. Same for the uh, Pascagoula River Basin, like the Chickasaw Hay River, et cetera. So great question. Thank you. Thanks, John. Always good to hear from you. We're visiting today on Creature Comforts with our guest for the hour, Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. We're going to be talking uh, primarily today about the swallow-tailed kite. Uh, Jennifer, you mentioned central Mississippi. Is that where you would find most of them in Mississippi, and are they year-round residents of our state? Central Mississippi is where I'm conducting surveys right now. We're going to be doing early, early aerial surveys this summer over Homochitta and the Pearl and Strong Rivers and some of those smaller creek basins that I just mentioned. But really, uh, this time of year, if you wanted to find swallowtail kites on migration, some great places to look along the coast would be in Hancock County, like the Possum Walk 
near Pearlington or the Ainsley Birding Trail in Jackson County. Uh, I'm sorry, Ainsley Birding Trail is in Hancock County. And then in, in Jackson County, you might try like the Fountain Glow Trail in Ocean Springs or the Pascagoula River Audubon Center in Moss Point. And go ahead. Let's. I'm trying to remember what was the second part of your question. Uh, if they're year-round residents here in Mississippi. Oh, right. Great. That's a great question. So each year, the Swallowtail Kites embark on an incredible 10,000-mile round-trip journey. Wow. They are actually only here in the spring and summer. And then, so we're, we're their breeding grounds. And then they travel to South America, to southern Brazil, where they spend the winter. We know from our GPS satellite tracking studies that the Orleans Audubon Society conducts with the Avian Research and Conservation Institute in Florida, that, that these birds go all the way down to southern Brazil. And the tracking devices have revealed that one important threat to them is happening right now. That would be when we have strong cold fronts in the spring and the kites are flying across the Gulf of Mexico trying to make the race back to the breeding grounds. And so one of the kites that we have a transmitter on right now it's a male called Ponchatalawa. His transmitter just reported that he is at the Yucatan Peninsula about to launch off. And this was a report from yesterday. So I really fear for him because he might be one of those kites that gets partway across the Gulf and then boom, hits this really strong cold front with strong north winds that he's got to sit there and battle, really the, the battle of his life. So stay tuned there. Say a prayer for Ponchatalawa, please. <laughs> So I guess is a climate change possible uh, reason for, for part of the, 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 the difficult journeys that, that they might be facing at times? Certainly it's happened throughout their evolution, and it's probably at times spring migrations when they've there have been several in a row that have killed a lot of adults trying to cross the Gulf. It's probably changed their arrival times. But uh, – the idea with climate change is that it could be increasing the frequency and strength of storms and, and uh, excessive weather. And if that is indeed the case, then yes. Uh, let's work in a phone call here. Uh, we'll talk to uh, Catherine from Greenwood. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I have been enjoying my uh, bird feeders in the backyard and the front yard, all different kinds, until... I have been invaded by um, red, uh, red-winged blackbirds and grackles, and they're so nasty that they drive everybody else away. Uh, is there any suggestions um, on how I can handle this so that I can see my cardinals again and, uh, and other little birds that I was enjoying so much? Jennifer, any thoughts on that? That's a tough one. I know they can clean out your feeder. A flock of red-winged blackbirds can just wipe you out of seeds in a matter of moments. You yeah. might try some feeders that are suet feeders, for example. They're less. They, I've never seen the blackbirds feed on suet. You might change up the type of feeder so that they have to go through a smaller hole, maybe something the blackbirds aren't used to. But your cardinals may have to learn it, too. Yeah. Yeah, because they were so enjoying the platform feeders that I had. And, boy, those are just like candy, uh, red-winged blackbirds. They're just, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw my ad. Um, if you can 
take down your platform feeders for a while. That helps a lot. And, you know, I have an occasional problem like that with red wing blackbirds, but it never lasts very long here. And I, I don't know about your area, but uh, they usually prefer something much different from what they're finding in our bird feeders. And I think they do that if they're kind of in a pinch and haven't found something. Like in, during the snow event, they piled into everybody's yard and were interested in the feeders at that time. But um, I've not seen mine back since the snow melted. So I, and I know they're around the area because I can hear them. So I think that they prefer natural food more so than even um, many birds that stay on our feeders. So hopefully they're going to go to natural food. All right, uh, Catherine, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Colson, throughout the hour. Uh, but before our next break, let's get a pet question for Dr. Major, and it comes from ML in Tennessee. You're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Uh, good morning. Uh, I would just like some more information and just hear a little talk about feline intestinal peritonitis. Okay, feline F in- Infectious peritonitis, right. It's infectious peritonitis is the name of it. FIP is what it's uh, commonly called. This is a disease that uh, is very, uh, I'd say it's somewhat rare. It's usually communicated with uh, at an early age uh, from an infected animal to a kitten. But one of the problems with this is that the virus may mutate and that can cause some issues. So you don't really know a lot of times what, uh, what shall I say, which animal would be affected. It has to do with the immune system. Uh, there are some new treatments that you need to talk to your veterinarian about that might help if you wanted to treat a cat with feline infectious peritonitis. And I hope we're talking about the same thing. It's FIP is, I believe, what you're asking feline infectious peritonitis. There are really two forms of it. Uh, one form is more of the abdominal form where you get a abdominal fluid build up. The other is a dry form, which may affect anything uh, in the cat's body, brain, uh, other organs. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to treat. Uh, what's been your experience with uh, the FFP? Hello? I had a stray kitten that came in and out during the summer, I mean, just in the yard when I was working. And finally, yes. I got him into the house and was taking care of him. And uh, then a couple of weeks ago, I thought, you know, do cats have ascites? Because mm-hmm. I, he bellowed out and you know, yes. people thought it was fat, but that was not it. And um, anyway, he became very ill Wednesday, Thursday, and on March the 5th, I had to, I went to my vet and we had to put him down. Right. But I, I just, I keep reading everything over and over, and it just seems like the mortality rate is just so, I mean, it's 100%. I mean, you know. It's, it's very high. There is, there is no vaccine uh, for this particular disease. And uh, most people opt not to try to treat it, but there are some treatments that are available. Uh, one of the heartbreaking things is where you bring in, a, let's say, a kitten uh, six months old or something like this, yes, the stress of uh, maybe neutering or spaying, and then a week or two later, they may develop the FIP-type thing that you saw. 
So the good news is that it's not real common, and uh, I would hope that uh, you don't have to experience this again. It's a heartbreaker, I tell you. It absolutely is. Yes, sir. And I appreciate your call. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks, ML. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Colson. Dr. Major and Libby Hartfield still are with us. They're ready to take your pet questions and creature questions and comments. The number to call, it's 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. Email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Creature Comforts, where our guest for the hour is... Dr. Jennifer Colson. Uh, if you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app on your smartphone, or you can download the MPB Public Media app, and you can enjoy all of the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 email animals at mpbonline.org looks like we've got a uh, white hawk question coming from curtis who is on the road this morning curtis you're on the air with us go ahead yes uh my wife and i was traveling one day down through college mississippi and we noticed up in the trees that it was a, a all white hawk uh it looked like a uh, a red tail hawk but it was all white. It just had a little brown at the end of the feathers. And I was just wondering, was that an albino hawk, or have you ever seen one before? Wow, that's really quite a sighting. So red-tailed hawks, uh, albinism and leukism have been reported in red-tailed hawks before. And since that bird had a little bit of coloration on it, it wouldn't be called a true albino then because albino would be completely white and the irises would be uh, pink and even the beak would be kind of a pinkish looking color. So it must have been a leukistic red-tailed hawk. Wow, that's really quite a sighting. (laughs) Pretty rare. It was was beautiful. Uh, You you couldn't help but to see it in the trees and we was trying to get a picture of it, but it kept flying away. But I also, uh, I have a comment. Uh, I travel every day up into the Delta, and just north of Yazoo City, Mississippi, there's a, a bald eagle nest just off the highway that you can see the bald eagles in the trees every day that I drive through there. And I just wanted to comment about that. All right, uh, Curtis, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. We're talking today about the swallowtail kite. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about uh, your field work plan for the spring and summer. Uh, But before we leave, uh, just kind of general information about these birds, uh, what can you tell us about their social life? The swallowtail kite is one of the few birds of prey that's really a highly social bird of prey. Most hawks 
you know, are on their own and they'll only get together with another hawk when they're pairing to nest. But the swallowtail kite really has a social lifestyle. They hunt in uh, small groups to large flocks, sometimes over a hay pasture. You might be lucky and see a group of, say, 30 swallowtail kites hunting flying insects like dragonflies and and uh, katydids and, and grasshoppers. And they nest in small groups, uh, loose colonies, where you might have somewhere between two and seven pairs that are nesting, oh, within a mile or, of each other. Sometimes their nests are only a stone's throw away from each other. And uh, they also group mob predators. So if they have something like a great horned owl, that, which is one of their deadly enemies, in their territory, then all the birds in the territory will swoop over it in a circle and maybe dive and possibly even strike the owl once or twice on the back. But they're very careful about that because the owl is such a dangerous predator. Same thing for a bald eagle. Uh, they, and they probably also migrate in small groups too. Got another caller on the line. Our friend Kathleen has called in from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. You're on the air with us. Well, good morning, guys. I've got something that'll make you smile after all that bad weather. I was going around the outside of the house, just checking and seeing any trees down, and I saw a bunch of fireflies in the gully. And I noticed there were three different colors. There was the white glow, a blue-white glow, and a yellow glow. And I paid attention to Libby when she told me a couple years back that sometimes they take different levels of the trees to the floor, ground floor. And I noticed all the ones in the trees were coming lower and lower, and they started on the ground, and they started flicking on and off. Now, they did synchronize, but they never formed the cloud that I had seen before, about two feet, three feet above the ground, few years back they formed a cloud started to swirl and i mean it was amazing but i was blessed to see them because y'all know y'all been putting up with me for seven years trying to see what i'm doing wrong where are they do they come back but yes they do they come back and it was beautiful and thanks to anyone who answered the switchboard this morning because i know when they did uh they heard me carrying on about i wish kevin and libby and Dwy were here to see this <laughs> thought it was a little crazy, but I couldn't get a picture because it, it just didn't come out. It looked like charcoal gray with black stripes and very little identifiable. But I thought you'd appreciate that they finally came back after seven years we waited for them. All right. Thanks, Kathleen. Always good to hear from you. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today uh, with our guest... Um, Jennifer Colson, Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society, and we've been talking about uh, the swallowtailed kite. Uh, Jennifer, tell us a little about some of the field work you have planned for uh, this year. Well, we're working with the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, as well as Audubon, Mississippi. We're surveying areas of central Mississippi for swallowtail kites. We're hoping to find their main activity centers, like their nesting areas and their foraging areas and the places where they roost, where they spend the night. And so then what we would like to do is try to reach out to landowners and land managers of these sites and just give them some ideas about how they might help swallowtail kites, purely voluntary, but a lot of people 
in central Mississippi are really interested in the kite and want to do what they can to help preserve them. So we're going to do mostly aerial surveys and then a few ground surveys in places where there are restrictions so it's more difficult for us to fly. So an aerial survey, tell us a little bit more about that. You, you actually, I'm in an airplane? Yeah. So lately I've been using the two-seater. So it's myself and the pilot. It's pretty tight there in the cockpit. And uh, the pilot, Wayne Wilson, is a Cloud9 aviation out of Picayune. He is an expert kite spotter. And he's even found a few nests himself without using binoculars. But we follow the kites around. We stay up high. You know, we're, we're um, at least... 800 to 1,000 feet over them. We stay up high and we follow them. So we can, these birds are nesting in some pretty remote areas. So this, the airplane allows us to cover a big area relatively quickly. And we're not biased by only being near a road or only being in a boat on the edge of a river, that kind of thing. So that we can really, in a non-biased way, find out where their activities hotspots are. But our work is driven by citing reports from the general public. So one of the things that really helps us is when people call us and tell us places where they have seen swallowtail kites pretty often, where they suspect nesting, uh, where they know of a nest, or where they're seeing a big flock that's feeding on foraging insects, because a lot of times that means they're nesting groups nearby. And so they can... Uh, find the, our contact information at the Orleans Audubon Society's website, jjaudubon.net. We, we also have a conservation brochure that we developed for the swallowtail kite that we can mail to you, or uh, it's available for download as a PDF file from jjaudubon.net, our website. Just look for the swallowtail kite tab across the front there. That must be quite a sight when you're up there uh, up flying above them, trying to track them. That, that It sounds like that would be really a, a, just a, a fun thing to do for really anybody, uh, you know, whether you're in, in the business as it were or not. So we, that sounds like a, an awesome thing. Um, when we, when uh, we have a roost, like say, say there's a roost of 30 birds sitting in the top of a bald cypress tree and you're looking down on them and those gleaming white heads, it just looks like somebody put a Christmas tree out there for you <laughs> with the best decorations possible, you know. Uh, let's get a call in before our next break. It's uh, Charlotte in Jackson. Good morning, Charlotte. You're on the air. Good morning. I have a comment and question about what I believe is a red-tailed hawk in my backyard. I have a backyard with lots of trees, and early this year I've been enjoying the goldfinch and all the other little birds that would come to the feeder. And then I noticed that they weren't coming anymore, and then I noticed there was a strange call up in the tree, and I've got my binoculars out, and as best I understand, it's probably a red-tailed hawk. It has little fuzzy legs, and I've noticed that there are two of them, and my goldfinch are nowhere to be seen, and even there are fewer squirrels. So my real question is, how long are these red-tailed hawks going to stay in my backyard before they decide to go somewhere else? <laughs> The million-dollar question, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. if it is, if it is indeed a red-tailed hawk, and you're, you said you were seeing two of them. I have seen two. Yes. Well, that may be an indication that they're hoping to breed. So in Mississippi, we have red-tailed hawks that migrate here and spend the winter here. And if those are migrants, then they will leave very soon. But if they are a resident pair, 
well, then you're probably stuck with them for the whole spring and summer (laughs) (laughs) because this would be the start of their breeding season. However, I wonder, why don't you also look up Cooper's Hawk? Because those are the birds that really uh, come around bird feeders and terrify small birds. A lot of the small birds are not as afraid of a red-tailed hawk because they know it's the, the Cooper's hawk is the one that's more of a bird predator. So I'd suggest oh. checking that out too. Okay. Well, I hope so. This bird had the, has furry legs. Is that any help? Yeah, the feathers on the legs. Okay. So a, a Cooper's hawk would have long skinny legs. And so the, the bottom part by the feet would be bare. It may, uh, you may have a red-tailed hawk. Yeah, and it might it, it could be either, you're saying, either a, a migratory bird who'll move on or somebody who just wants to sit around for the spring. That's right. You'll know soon. It, so the call, you mentioned the call, the red-tailed hawk makes a very striking yeah, That's it. That's it. <laughs> oh, then you do. Yeah, so when you watch movies that have bald eagles, a lot of times the bald eagle makes a kind of wimpy, so uh-huh. they usually splice in the call of the red-tailed hawk, the cure. <laughs> you got it. That's that's it. But it doesn't come to the feet, or is it just looking for other little animals or something? M- most likely squirrels, yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm happy for it to scare the squirrels away. I just missed my pretty little bird. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate well, good luck. the information. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for Thanks for the call, Charlotte. One more break this hour. Uh, When we get back, we will wrap up our discussion with Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. Still time to work in a phone call, though. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for this hour, Dr. Jennifer Colson, president of the Orleans Audubon Society. We have been talking about the uh, the swallowtail kite. Um, so, uh, Jennifer, you've been studying the species for a long time. What sorts of threats uh, to kites have you uh, documented over the course of your study? I started this study to look at why the population was not really reclaiming portions of its former range. And maybe kites are doing a little bit better than when I first started this study, but it's really tough question to answer because, you know, what's really keeping the population back because the habitat's regrown because these kites go all the way down to Brazil and back. So things could be affecting them anywhere across their entire range. Uh, But we have been able to nail down one important threat, which, as I mentioned, is the spring cold fronts and when when they occur at the wrong time when kites are migrating. Uh, But here on the breeding grounds, we've documented a lot of nest predation. And some of the nest predators that will kill even adults on nests are animals that really do well or thrive when humans have fragmented the landscape. So 
some of the the uh, death and destruction that's due to things like red-tailed hawks and great horned owls and raccoons may be due to the fact that we've changed their habitat some uh, by developing it. And then uh, we've also, there, there's been plenty of weather because they nest really high up at the tops of trees. So any storm, any little thunderstorm has a likelihood of tossing out eggs or chicks, little bait, little nestlings. And uh, we've documented collisions where it's been, a kite's been hit by a boat or a car, entanglement in trot lines and fishing equipment because they'll fly along the edges of streams and uh, ponds and lakes when they're looking for dragonflies, et cetera. Uh, and then also some disease. We've just documented a little bit of problems with West Nile virus and uh, a parasite that embeds in the lining of their intestines. But shooting is one that everybody could do something about. Unfortunately, even though these birds are protected by state and federal law, there are Mississippi endangered species, people still shoot them. And what happens is the kite will circle so slowly and deliberately over somebody's backyard for, say, five or 10 minutes. Well, what it's doing is it's looking for a tree frog or a cicada or something that's very small, that's in a shrub or in, in the, the tree canopy, and it's not going after somebody's barnyard chickens. But there's that, because it's so beautiful and so captivating and circling for so long, people are just convinced it has to be after their chickens. A little, Spread the word. Yeah. Don't shoot. <laughs> um, a little earlier, you were talking about some of the survey work that you have planned for the upcoming year. Is it difficult for people like you who are, you know, researching wildlife uh, to, to find funding? And, and how do you go about trying to get uh, surveys and studies and research funded? Yeah, the funding, it's challenging to be in the field and also writing proposals and grant reports and finding funding. So right now, my work in central Mississippi, because the state is so interested in the swallowtail kite, they, they have uh, helped me to get a state wildlife grant, which provides federal money, and then I'm providing matching funds. I'm actually volunteering my time, so my time is actually... The, the match for the grant and uh, also some of Orleans Audubon Society is providing some equipment and Audubon Mississippi is providing uh, Stephanie Green who is the ecologist at the um, Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. She is helping with the kite project. She's also a field biologist and ecologist. So i uh, got about a minute left, and if you could, maybe if uh, people have heard our discussion this morning, want to learn more about uh, the swallow-tailed kite or maybe just birds in general, would there be a website or two that you could recommend? I would recommend going to jjaudubon.net, which has information, a whole page of information on the swallow-tailed kite, but also on birding sites. And uh, we have a YouTube channel. Orleans Audubon Society, if you would like to get started in birding, we've just uploaded a bunch of recordings that are about beginning in bird watching. So that could be a good resource too. And the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science has an incredible website and it's a great place to visit too, by the way. All right. Um... That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. 
For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Jennifer Colson, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.